Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome back to Kudzu Killers Homicide and Sweet Tea. We had a busy, busy weekend at my house, planted tomatoes and herbs and some flowers and did a Costco run, did oil changes, tire rotations, hanging movie posters in our movie room, all that stuff you do on the weekends. And I think we've lived in this house for nine years and we're just now getting around to hanging pictures. We're slow. I totally feel you. Although yesterday it was so incredibly beautiful. It was a sky that is only in Texas. Of course, I'm sure other people will say this, but it was the most beautiful blue sky. Uh, So Chody and I went and had lunch outside and did the beach thing and walked along the boardwalk and we're just so goofy, romantic sometimes. So that's what we did. And And disgusting. (laughs) Yeah, well, but also guess what? I saw the first blue bonnets, Kim. Yay, it means it's spring in Texas. We get blue bonnets. I know, I know. So that's pretty cool. That's really pretty awesome. Awesome. Everybody hauls their kids to the fields of blue bonnets and takes their picture every year. Well, (laughs) that is what everybody has been doing forever. And uh, nobody mentions that there's snakes in them that are blue bonnets. So if you Uh, decide to do that, (laughs) don't uh, just be careful. That's all. (laughs) Anyway, anyway. Well, today... I'm going to talk about two brothers. One was a hero and the other one a villain. Oh. I'm talking about the Stainer brothers, Stephen and Carrie. I Hmm. don't know if you remember the story of Stephen Lark. Do you remember Stephen Stainer? Not sure that I do, but maybe as we go. (laughs) Probably in the late 70s when we were in high school or something like that. There was a movie on TV, miniseries called I Know My Name is Stephen. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, I remember that, now. That was mm-hmm. Stephen Stainer. Mm-hmm. On December 4th, 1972, when he was seven years old, Stephen Stainer was walking home from school in Merced, California, which at the time had a population of about 22,000. I think now it's about hundred eighty or 100,000, but Anyway, Stephen was walking home from his elementary school when a man named Irvin Murphy stopped him and claimed to be working for a church and asked if Stephen's mother might have some donations she'd be willing to give to the church. 
Stephen mm-hmm. said yes. He thought she might and started leading the man toward his house. And a few seconds later, White Buick pulled up and stopped. And Murphy, along with a man named Kenneth Parnell, who'd said he'd drive Stephen home to pick up those things, led Stephen into the car willingly. Mm. He thought he was being driven home, like I said, to his mom. Kenneth Parnell was a convicted child rapist. Oh, no. Murphy and Parnell both worked at Yosemite National Park, and keep that in mind for a little bit later. Mm -hmm. Murphy was sort of a simpleton, I guess you could call him. He was mentally challenged, and he was happy to have the friendship of Parnell. Parnell claimed to be a preacher, and he had told Murphy he wanted to kidnap a little boy to raise him in a religious way. Oh, my goodness. Murphy apparently didn't know at the time what Parnell had in in mind for Stephen, that it Mm -hmm. wasn't anything Mm church-related. Stephen was confused when, instead of driving home, they took him to Parnell's cabin about 30 minutes away in Kathy's Valley. Parnell molested Stephen that first night, and he started raping him less than two weeks later. Oh, no. Stephen begged to be taken home, but Parnell told him he'd been granted custody and was adopting Stephen because his parents had too many children and needed to get rid of one. Oh, my God. Delbert and Kay Stainer did have five children, and Stephen was the middle child. He had an older sister named Cynthia, a brother named Carrie, and two younger sisters named Corey and Jody. Parnell's cabin, ironically, was only a few hundred feet from Stephen's maternal grandfather's house. Oh, wow. So if he tried to run away, his grandfather was right down the street, and he didn't know it. And he didn't try to run terrible. He was given ample opportunity over the years to get away as he and Parnell moved around the state from place to place, and Parnell did odd jobs here and there. Parnell had told him and claimed to have adopted him, and he changed his name to Dennis Parnell. He called him by that, kept his middle name of Gregory, and his birth date. And Stephen evidently believed the lies that he was being told. He was enrolled in school and attended school for a few years. And Parnell really wasn't much of a father, of course, because he's more interested in what he can get out of Stephen. Right. So he didn't discipline him. He didn't, you know, do anything to give him any rules to live by. He started letting him drink in fourth or fifth grade. He left him unsupervised for long periods of time while he went off to work some odd job here and there. And like I said, Stephen could have escaped. He had lots of opportunities, but he didn't because he believed his parents really didn't want him and that he'd been adopted by this man. That's horrible. And he said later on that he really had no idea how to get help. He didn't know what to do. Well, that makes sense. When Stephen was nine years old for a year and a half, Parnell had a woman living with him named Barbara Mathias, and they both actively participated in raping and molesting Stephen. According to Stephen, at least nine times. Yeah. When Stephen turned 10, he was getting too old for Parnell, and he sent Matthias to try to lure a much younger boy. The attempt didn't succeed, though, and it would be four more years, when Stephen was 14, that Parnell enlisted his help in trying to snatch another boy. Oh, golly. At this point, Stephen had started to become a, you know, kind of rebellious, a rebellious teen, because he had no rules. He had no, you know... Nothing to go by. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He'd never had proper discipline or any sort of parenting, and he was getting tired of the abuse. He was all over it. No doubt. It was done. He was done. 
and he knew that whatever child was taken would suffer in the same way he had for the last seven years. They'd be raped over and over at the hands of Parnell and whoever else wanted to participate. Mm -mm. So every time Parnell sent him to chat up a little boy and convince him to come along, Stephen did something to thwart the plan. He would uh, you know, tell him to run along or something like that because oh, he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to bring anybody else into what he'd lived through. Oh, good, good for him. Then finally, Parnell, figuring Stephen just didn't know how to lure kids away, enlisted the help of one of Stephen's friends, Randall Poorman, to kidnap a five-year-old boy by the name of Timothy White on Valentine's Day in 1980. So this was eight years later. Mm -hmm. Stephen didn't want this distressed little boy to suffer what he had for the past seven or eight years. So on March 1st, that's a couple of weeks later, while mm -hmm. Parnell was at work, Stephen took Timothy and hitchhiked to Ukiah, where Timothy was from. Yay! Yeah, but the little boy was too young to remember where he lived, so after searching for Timothy's home unsuccessfully for a while, Stephen took the little boy to the police station and helped him inside, planning to turn around and leave. But the police saw them and took them both in for questioning. It was there that he told police the title of that movie, I Know My Name is Stephen. Aww. He went on to say he thought his last name might be Stainer, but he wasn't sure if he had a middle name or not. He told the police about the torture he'd endured. He told them the whole story and everything that he could remember. In a later interview, he said that he couldn't see Timmy suffer. I just didn't think it was right for him to have to go through the same thing that I did. He really didn't have to. There was someone there who could stop it, mm -hmm. meaning himself. Mm-hmm. When Stephen returned to his family, he had a lot of issues. Of course, many were the result of the abuse he'd sustained at the hands of Parnell, but also at the new discipline he was subject to and the rules he wasn't used to having. He'd grown used to having little or no supervision and no rules. Right. right. So adjusting to coming back to his family and his home was complicated, and it was further complicated by the constant media attention he received. I mean, I can remember back then, the reporter, you know, every day, almost, it seemed like anyway, there was something on TV about him and about his story. Right, because this is so unusual at that time. Right. R reporters came from all over the country and actually all over the world, uh, Europe and everywhere. And Stephen only had a few counseling sessions with a psychologist after he got home. Oh, my goodness. And nothing in the way of psychotherapy to deal with the years of mental and physical abuse he'd had mm -hmm. to live through. He once joked that he didn't see the need to spend $100 an hour on a therapist. He said, I've been talking to reporters for nine years. It's a pretty good substitute. <laughs> but he really needed that counseling. He had difficulty fitting back home, as I said before, but also difficulty at school, passing his well, classes. Sure. You know, dis discipline issue, grades, until he finally dropped out. Aww. He was kicked out of his parents' home a couple of times because of his failure to want to live by the rules. He was smoking and drinking. By the time he was 19, he'd amassed about $1,100 in traffic tickets. Oh, goodness That gracious. he had to work off chopping wood for the parks department. <laughs> but he kept on getting traffic violations, so eventually his license was taken away. Now, Stephen worked at everything from pizza delivery guy to working in a meatpacking plant, all minimum wage jobs. But then something happened. 
he met and fell in love with a girl by the name of Jody Edmondson. Aww. She seemed to stabilize him, and even though they had their ups and downs, he was finally settling down and settling in, and they were married when he was 20 and she was 17. Aww. And I think we're going to take a break here and have a word from our sponsors, and then we'll be back in just a few minutes to, to go to the evil side of this story. Oh, more evil? I can't imagine. Be right back. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey everyone, you're invited to Harpy, Harpy Hour. Hour. I'm Tracy. I'm Liz. I'm Steph. We are the Harpies. And Harpy Hour is our new podcast featuring ridiculous stories in history, science, and entertainment. Were you ever suspicious that pigeons were secretly spying on you? How do you know who to eat first if you survive a shipwreck? Do problematic musicals send you into an uncontrollable rage? If so, then Harpy Hour might be your new favorite podcast. That's H-A-R-P-Y for Harpy, and new episodes air every Tuesday wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find us on all social media at Harpy Hour Pod. And check us out on harpyhourpodcast.com. Okay, bye! Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, thanks for coming back. Now, back to what I said earlier about Parnell and Murphy working in a resort at Yosemite. Well, Stephen's older brother, Carrie, worked at Yosemite as well at a motel just outside the park. Isn't that odd? It is. Carrie was 11 when Stephen disappeared, and he felt a certain amount of resentment towards Stephen both before and after his return. He said he felt neglected, like his parents grieved for the loss of Stephen and didn't have time for him. Mm. They didn't pay enough attention to their other children. And in 1991, at the age of 30, he attempted suicide. He was arrested in 1997 for drug possession, marijuana, and meth, but the charges were eventually dropped. It was 1997 that he began working at the motel Cedar Lodge in El Portal on Highway 40, just outside the park, like I said. He worked as a handyman and fixed issues with rooms. Uh-oh. <laughs> Now, on February 15th, 1999, three guests at the motel went missing. Mm-hmm. Carol Sund, 42, her daughter Julie, 15, and Julie's friend and an exchange student from Argentina by the name of Silvina Palazzo, 
who was 16. They questioned some people, including the motel handyman, Carrie Stainer, but no one was arrested. Stainer had been laid off since January, so he wasn't at the motel working, and he didn't have a record of any kind, so they let him go. They couldn't find anything on him to incriminate him. On March 18th of that year, Carol's son's rental car was found with Carol's and Sylvina's charred bodies in the trunk. They didn't find Julie until March 25th, a week later, when an anonymous letter came in with a hand-drawn map showing them where she was located, about an hour away, hidden in a thicket. Along with the map was a note that said, we had fun with this one. Oh, no. Then on July 22nd, the beheaded body of a park naturalist, Joy Armstrong, was found inside the park just outside her home. This time, though, there were witnesses who saw a blue 1979 International Scout parked outside her cabin. Detectives traced the owner of that car, and the owner turned out to be, guesses? Oh, my. Carrie Stanner. His brother. Mm. Mm, Stephen's brother, Carrie. On July 24th, they tracked Carrie Stanner down to Laguna del Sol Nudist Resort. Seems he was a part-time nudist. Or a voyeur, one of the two. Yeah, well, I kind of think probably, yeah. It's easy to be a peeping Tom on a, or yeah, a flasher naked, on a nude, right? or on a nude <laughs> beach. You give me a flasher and a, oh my God, mind boggles. <laughs> so he was taken in for questioning and he had a backpack and he wouldn't let him see it. So they, they took him in for questioning and took the backpack. And to everybody's surprise, including FBI agent Jeff Rinnick, who was questioning him, he confessed to four murders. Oh, wow. That's when he realized he'd also killed the three tourists back in February. At first, he refused to give Rinnick, or Reinick, I'm not sure, I think it's Rinnick, and fellow FBI agent John Bowles a complete confession unless they brought him a big stack of child porn. Oh, my. Particularly little girls, pictures, and videos. Oh, my goodness. He also wanted his family to get the $250,000 reward that Carol's son's parents had offered for information leading to the killer. Uh, no. <laughs> but the agents told him that's something that's out of their control. And they also uh, had, no, no, no. <laughs> they also said they had to go to a higher authority for the kitty porn, which they had no intention of giving him, of course. Of course not. Mm-hmm. So instead, the agents ordered pizza and they talked him into confessing. They were like, look, you're probably going to get the death penalty for Joy's death anyway. We know you did that. And there's enough evidence to prove it. So why not completely come clean and get the others off your conscience? Right. You'll feel relieved if you do. And so after he lamented about it for a while and the fact that he'd miss having pizza and he'd never seen Star Wars and all that jazz, he did Mm. confess to the murders. Evidently, Stainer had thought about doing this since he was a child. Since before, oh, wow. since before Stephen went missing. Mm-mm-mm. At seven, he'd had fantasies about putting a neighbor girl in a pit and keeping her there. Oh, my God. When Stephen oh. went missing, he felt those thoughts were the reason why. That somehow Stephen's disappearance was linked to him imagining doing something that evil. Hmm. Sounds like a, doesn't sound like a tiny bit of remorse, but not really. Yeah. He thought about killing his girlfriend and her two daughters, ages eight. And 10. But instead, it seems on February 14th, the day before Carol and Julie and Sylvina were murdered, he'd followed another family around town, a family with four girls. But these girls were with a man, and that didn't mm-hmm. pan out. He didn't, he wasn't going to, he's a coward. He wasn't going to attack right, four girls right. with a man. Exactly. 
he wanted women alone. Mm-hmm. So the next day, he saw Carol and the two girls while he was peeping through the window at the motel. He went to their room under the guise of fixing a bathroom fan. And so, of course, they let him in. I believe the two girls were watching a movie, Jerry Maguire maybe, and the mom was reading a book. Mm-hmm. He immediately pulled a gun, told mm-hmm. him he was desperate, and had them lay face down on the beds. He bound wow. them with duct tape and gagged them. He then took Julie and Sylvina into the bathroom. He strangled Carol, the mom, with a three-foot length of rope and said it took about five minutes. Uh-huh. He stated he didn't know how it, he didn't know at the time that it took that long to strangle a person. <sighs> then he put it's her a body long in the time. trunk. Yep. It is to hold a rope around somebody's neck tight enough to strangle them for five minutes. That's it takes a strong person. That's a lot of time. Put a timer on your microwave. Uh huh. It's personal. Yeah, up close and personal. personal. Right. Mm. You know, I challenge everybody: put a timer on your microwave or your phone and see how long five minutes is. It's a long Mm -hmm. time. Yeah, you can stop at any minute. Mm -hmm. Then he put her body in the trunk of her rental car. And went back inside. He brought the girls out of the bathroom, cut and tore their clothes off. He demanded they perform sex acts on each other. But Sylvina was so distressed, she was crying, which irritated him. So he took her back into the bathroom, had her kneel in the bathtub, and strangled her. He then returned to Julie, sexually assaulted her, then took her to another room at the motel and did it again, saying he didn't want her to see Sylvina's dead body. He left her tied up on the bed with the television on while he cleaned up the crime scene and put Sylvina's body in the trunk with Carol's. Wow. When they asked him where he'd learned how to clean up a crime scene so well, because they couldn't find anything, he said he watched the Discovery Channel. Oh, my goodness. And that's where he learned how to clean it up and get rid of evidence. Oh, my goodness. So at about 4 a.m., he took Julie, who was now wrapped up in a blanket, and put her in the passenger seat of the rental car. They talked as he drove around aimlessly. Then he told her he loved her, and that he wished he could keep her. And then he slit her throat. Well, of course. Oh, my goodness. Terrible. He stood there and watched her gesturing at him as she bled out for for about 20 seconds, and then he left her body in the thicket. Aww. He then drove the car with Carol and Sylvina's bodies back into the woods as far as he could and set it on fire with a can of gasoline he'd gotten on the way. Oh, my. Afterward, he took a cab back to Yosemite with $150 he stole from Carol's purse. Wow. Stainer pled not guilty by reason of his sanity. Well, of course he did. It seems his family had a long history of mental illness as well as pedophilia. He claimed his uncle had molested him when he was 11. He also claimed, and I don't doubt this, that he felt a tremendous amount of guilt when Stephen was kidnapped. Like, he was the big brother and he should have protected him. I think that's pretty common in situations like that. The older siblings think they could have done something. The parents think they could have done something. Right. His parents had sort of pulled away in the years after Stephen's disappearance. They were centered on finding their son. His father even going so far as to say his real son was gone. That must have made the guy feel good. Right. Delbert Stainer has been in trouble for molesting his daughters in order to get counseling. So evidently pedophilia went back five generations in this family. So it's kind of ironic that Stephen was kidnapped by a pedophile. Oh, that's horrible. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And Carrie Stainer had peeped in on his sisters and cousins, had groped one of his sisters inappropriately at one time or another. But mostly it was the feeling that he wasn't there, I think, that he, they concentrated the family, everything on finding Stephen, and there was nothing left over for him. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm not excusing his behavior. That's no excuse. That's just how he felt. That's right. It's invisible. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he pled guilty to Joy's murder. He didn't really have much choice. They kind of had him red-handed. I'm not sure if, if what they found in the backpack. I think there was a book about a serial killer and a few other things. But it was enough to convince him to plead guilty to that. And to Joy's family, he said, I wish I didn't do this terrible thing. I gave in to terrible dark dreams that I tried to subdue. I'm sorry. I wish I could tell you why. I don't even know myself. I wish Joy was here, but she isn't. I am so sorry. Hmm. But like I said earlier, he pled innocent to Carol, Julie, and Sylvina's murders. Basically, you know, not guilty by reason of insanity. His lawyer cited the family's issues with molestation and mental illness. The fact that he asked for child pornography in return for his confession was another thing that they brought up. No normal person would do that. Right. They said he had OCD, mild autism, and paraphilia, which, according to Merriam-Webster, is defined as a pattern of recurring sexually arousing mental imagery or behavior that involves unusual and especially socially unacceptable sexual practices, such as sadism or pedophilia. So Mm -hmm. he kind of did have those traits. But the jury didn't buy it. And on August twenty second, 2002... He was convicted of four murders in California court and sentenced to death. Where he's probably still sitting. (laughs) Yes, he's still sitting there. And he's 59 years old, Mm -hmm. close to 60. He tried appeals, saying the jury members weren't victims of molestation, so they wouldn't understand. But that didn't pan out either. So he's sitting there, like I said, for, for 19 years, going on 20. Stephen Stainer, as I said earlier, was married to Jody, not his sister. That's right, sort of right, like right. my family, Kim and Kim. Right. But uh, he was married and had two or three children. And he had his life finally back on track. He held down two jobs, one as a janitor and another as a pizza delivery guy. And he talked to kids at school about how to stay safe from people like to the ones who took him. Oh, that's so sweet. He testified in front of the State Ways and Means Committee on stiffer penalties for child abduction requiring fingerprints for children. Basically, he wanted parents to get their children fingerprinted so that if something did happen and they disappeared, they might be able to find them. He could have been found if there'd been fingerprints on record for him, probably. Right. I remember there was some sort of program like that way back then. Mm -hmm. They were trying to get everybody to get their kids fingerprinted. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We had ours fingerprinted Mm -hmm. because they, you know, that was, and they gave out little cards with their school pictures that had all their vital information on it. Which was oh, pretty that's awesome. Neat, I mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. And he enjoyed the media attention at first until it became too much. And he just wanted a normal life without people watching his every move. Yeah. He bought a understand. motorcycle. Yeah, of course. He bought a motorcycle with some of the $30,000 he received for the rights to his story. It was a blue and white 1989 Kawasaki EX500. It's a pretty <laughs> neat bike. <laughs> As he left work on a rainy day on September 16, 1989, his boss told him to take one of the delivery trucks instead of his bike so he could stay dry on his way home. He was anxious to get home, though, and he reminded his boss that he didn't have a license at the time. 
and he didn't want to cause any problems for the store if he got pulled over. Instead, he headed home to his wife and kids on his motorcycle. He was going less than the speed limit when a car pulled out in front of him, and Stephen slammed into it. Oh, and he no. was 24 years old when he died. Oh, my God. That's horrible. Yeah. Aww. Timothy White, remember the little boy, the five-year-old that he rescued? Yes. Mm-hmm. At this point, was around 14 years old, and he served as a pallbearer at his funeral. Oh, that's so sweet. Timothy went on to become an L.A. County Sheriff's deputy. Well, that's awesome. Unfortunately, he passed away, too, on April 1st, 2010, from a pulmonary embolism. He was only 35 years old. Oh, my gosh. And yet, the evil one is still alive. That's right. The evil stainer is still alive, sitting Mm -mm. in prison, getting his three Mm -mm. a day. Mm Mm-hmm. I do kind of love that Stephen was delivering pizza, and Carrie was all stressy that he would never have pizza again. I love that. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of... I love it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. He, it was about 10 years later that he committed those murders, 10 years after Stephen passed away. Oh, wow. That was so sad. So that was my story this week. Well, wow. It's a Debbie Downer. I can remember this kid from, from when we were kids. and Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, basically. I, I, I recall some of this vaguely, but of course, as we were kids, we're not paying much attention either. But I remember because our parents were all, our parents were worried because they were watching the stuff, even though we might have been watching. They're like, and I hope that they'd have been a lot more protective of us. I mean, we both had good parents. So yeah, thank God for that. <laughs> yeah. um, but thanks, Kim. Hey. Yeah. If you have any comments about this episode, um, go to our website, com, and make your comments there. And uh, drop your email into the email information right there on the front page of the website. And we will be sending out a monthly newsletter starting at the end of this month for you to keep up with us, what we're doing and things we're working on, and also some other podcasters you might be interested in. Well, thanks again for being with us and we hope that you join us again every tuesday and friday and in the meantime please don't bury the bodies without us bye y'all bye y'all Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. 
So go to trylifemd.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.